Welcome to the Face It Podcast. I'm Amy Lloyd. And I'm Amanda Lloyd. And we are here to have conversations with amazing people who have faced major life challenges or adversity head on. My mom and I hope their stories inspire you and offer relatable solutions that you can use in your life too. So So join join us and let's face it together. We had so much fun talking to this next guest that we felt like there was so much more we could have discussed. Yeah, we were on with Rachel for over an hour um, listening to her story. And my mom and I talked afterwards and we were like, oh, my gosh, there's so many more questions that came out of that interview which we hope that you guys will have as well. Yeah. So we feel like we'll need to definitely ask Rachel back to do a future episode. So can't wait for you guys to hear and please let us know any thoughts or questions and we'll have a follow-up episode and include your questions. Um, We're hoping to do that regularly, but this one specifically, just we ourselves have a lot more questions. So we hope you enjoy. So Rachel, we, we've talked a lot, but I want this to be an organic conversation. Okay. And as I share with you, our brand new um, podcast, Face It, is all about talking to people and special guests who have faced adversity or overcome any sort of major challenge, had the deck stacked against them in some way, and come out the other side of it yes. with success, right? In whatever way success, whatever that means to you. Okay. So, right, all of us have a different perspective of success. So, so that's kind of the premise of our podcast. And I wanted to introduce Rachel because she's amazing, Rachel Rowley. <laughs> I have followed Rachel on Instagram for a while and watched her from afar. And when I moved back to Spokane um, over this past year from California, I was watching Rachel. I'm like, oh, my God this chick is amazing. Like I'm watching all the things she's doing. I even told Amanda, I'm sure. Cause I was like, I've heard it. I'm like, (laughs) she's so gorgeous and she's in such great shape and seems so down to earth. And so finally I pulled the trigger and reached out um, because Rachel is a fitness instructor and nutrition coach in Spokane and a big influencer here. So I was a little intimidated to reach out and I did. And we started working together. (laughs) Yeah. And started training together um, in July. So, and I'm such a believer that, and I believe all of us here are that every, anyone that we cross paths with, we're meant to, and the people that are meant for us come into our lives and we're drawn to each other energetically for a reason. And I so believe that here with you, Rachel, because I feel like once we started talking, I'm like, Oh my God. Yes. We were, we were 100% meant to meet. So I remember, I remember my mom telling me that after she went to her first training session with you and obviously she's had a bunch since, but just how much you guys connected and that she felt like it was meant to happen. And I totally agree. And I can see it even having met you that one time, but um, you're so inspirational. And my mom shared so much about your story with me. I'm excited to hear it from you and ask you more questions. Yeah, well, I just feel so filled up right now. I'm just going to let you guys go and yeah. uh, take this high and run. So Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we'll start with, Rachel, if you don't mind sharing where you're from originally, let's just start right from the beginning. All the way back. Man, when you come up on 
43. That's like, whew, that's, uh, that's a while back. Um, I am from Paulding County, Ohio. Paulding oh. County. It's all in the name. Paulding County, Ohio. I love it. And what was yeah. it like growing up in Paulding County? Is that what you say? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Paulding it's like County. Spalding without the S. Ah, good way to say it. Okay. Paulding County. What was it like growing up there? Okay, so Paulding County, that's a trick question, right? So my, it, for me, it is. My mom and my dad were divorced when I was three. So I always claim Paulding as my hometown. It's where I was born. It's where my dad stayed. Um, so it was always kind of like ground zero, but my mom was a little nomad. And because of the court system, she could only go within an hour or so of Paulding County, Ohio. Um, so when you ask, what was it like growing up? I feel like I was a smorgasbord of experiences. So within an hour of, you know, Paulding County, it's a small rural town. You know, you got soybean fields, corn fields, um, very small town. Like they'd have to bust everybody in to go to one school because there wasn't enough kids in certain towns wow. to go to, to certain schools. Okay. So Paulding itself, when I was there um, young with my mom, we we're very, very poor. So I grew up in the very poor section of Paulding County. And it's kind of weird because it's such a small town, but there was actually still a poor section, you know, and we had a high Hispanic population. Um, I don't know if it was the agriculture. So we grew up in a Hispanic community, which was actually kind of cool. I remember um, some of the traditions, I had no idea that's where it came from, but they have eggs that they fill up with confetti and you break the eggs and we had pinatas around certain things. So I had a lot of different, that culture, but I didn't so even realize oh, cool. that's what it was. Yeah, it was yeah. really, really neat. <laughs> And my dad um, actually loved Texas. So he even brought more of that to us. He loved everything about Texas and what it stood for. And he would go to places where there was a high uh, Hispanic population. Plus we were Catholic, which that puts you in, you know, it's, it's kind of all interesting how that all touched me, but I really didn't know until I got older, the influence that had on me. So I grew up very poor in Paulding County, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't such a big town. It was so small that I didn't really even know. So we were on welfare. I had no clue. I didn't have any qualms about going and getting candy bars, I guess, with <laughs> welfare money. My mom, when, when they split, you know, it was a very challenging uh, for her. So uh, what could I say about Paul? I grew up very poor, but I was very happy. I guess you said, like you said, we all have different definitions of success. And yes. as long as I was surrounded by my siblings, I was good. So it didn't matter if I was at mom's or if I was at dad's. He was very rural. So it was very structured and mom was more live in town. So to get back to the point within an hour of Paulding, when she started moving quite often, I could go anywhere from a, a town where they ran drugs through and you would actually okay. have a lot of gang activity to, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana was a little bit bigger town. Um, but it was, it was all kinds of all over the place with mom. So Paulding okay. itself was a really sweet community, um, that I really did enjoy. I couldn't feel my poverty there, but okay. as soon as mom started moving, I started noticing, right. Um, that I had okay. the plastic Kmart shoes that slipped across the gym floor when you tried to do the shuttle run. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you, because I think it's so fascinating for kids because they don't know the difference. And I love that you're sharing that you don't know the difference, especially if you're loved. I think it's when you start being around other 
kids and we always say you know girls especially start to lose self-esteem around eight years old and it's the influence of being around other students and so like you that's such a great comparison that you notice that your shoes are different than somebody yes. else's yeah so and that's what i was going to ask you which you already answered about growing up with both your mother and father so it sounds like you split your time originally mm -hmm. and then did you end up moving in with what i think you said you ended up moving you told me privately with your father later or when did that happen that happened when i was about 16 or 17. so oh, dad okay. yeah dads we did like every other weekend so we didn't get a lot of exposure to my dad um in the beginning when they first divorced but for him, he had a huge influence in that little time. He was very impactful. So he is a staunch Catholic and made sure I received the sacraments. He would do, he would pull strings with the local priest and have me do my little catechism book at home. I remember getting my first communion with, I just racked with poison ivy and definitely felt the difference there. Cause dad, you know, I had this like cotton dress on that was a hand-me-down from my cousins mom loved to do at-home haircuts so i had a fresh <laughs> mullet uh, <laughs> they're back in so yep. and i remember going up it was father beck who did my first communion and i did it in front of the whole church not with the little beautiful white dresses that i always wanted it didn't quite land it's so funny i'm even feeling it emotionally now how disappointed i was in the whole experience mm. because i didn't get to wear the pretty white dress or the thing of flowers i had to go on my own with this really not fun dress with a horrible haircut covered in poison ivy mm. and i'll never forget uh afterwards father dave beck said congratulations he's like can i hug you and i'm like nobody will touch me because and i was crying because <laughs> i had poison ivy and there's a picture he scoops me up in his arms and this is before they felt self-conscious about sharing you know the the catholic church obviously sure. the time where it was okay you know to to touch, touch. and embrace yeah. And he scooped me up and just held me in his arms. And there's a picture of us. And I had the biggest smile because he just washed away all of that Aww. disappointment by picking me up and, That's so sweet. you know, making me feel so included in that moment. So That's so sweet. That. Yeah. And, and, and so many memories you, are just popping up here. Like, I love that. <laughs> I love you sharing those anecdotes. That's Great question. You mentioned um, your siblings too, Rachel. And I was just curious how many siblings you did have. And if you, you kind of all went together, like, you know, obviously through the Catholic Church, but then when you moved with your dad too, and if you guys are close? Very good question. Um, so there were five of us. I'm the baby of five and I had an older sister. We're all two years apart. So it was kind of like there was Tess is the oldest and then Matt was two years younger, Jacob, Sarah, two years younger, and then me at the end of it. And we all actually moved in with my dad at different times. So we had a very rough childhood. Mom liked super abusive men and God rest her soul. My mom died at 49 when I was 20 years old oh, wow. and a lot of chaos went with her. You know, there it's, it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes I, I think that sounds very cold, but our lives got a lot less chaotic and dramatic. And so yeah. we all had different times where we were acting out because of the different abuse we were being subjected to based off of the alcoholic she was with at the time. And so the first person to actually move out was Jacob. He was four years older and him and Sarah and I were best buddies. 
we okay. were like tight. We would write contracts together about how we were never going to smoke like our oldest brother and sister. Oh, <laughs> did you keep to maintain those contracts? <laughs> no, he or actually for how long, smokes I now. Say, he how long. actually smokes now. Oh my god, that is so funny. I he love that. That's so sweet. He was an old soul. He would write it up with a feather quill pen. He made stuff so fun growing up. Jacob was so creative. He's actually a Catholic priest now oh, in Ohio. Wow. Yeah, and he would get the feather pen, dip it in ink. He'd empty all the pen into the ink, and then he'd write up these contracts for Sarah and I to sign so that it was like <laughs> all official. It was the best. That is so cool. It was super cool. So you yeah, remind he, him of this. Yeah, he, he remembers. We made music tapes together. Like we would make up songs and sing them. He always found a way. I never, like, again, I never knew I was poor with those guys yeah. because we always had so much fun no matter where we were. So, so long story long, um, my sister Sarah got cancer when she was 10. So I would have been around eight. Jacob would have been around 12 and she battled cancer for almost two years. She had a brain tumor mm. and she did not make it. So at the age of 12, she passed away and life got even harder after That's that. Tough. And we were all with our mom at the time. And I remember mom smoked cigarettes and so did her partners and they would smoke inside the home. And my brother Jacob had really bad asthma and so did I. Oh. And so, whoops, sorry about that. Oh, and so did I. So he, he made a request to our mom of like, hey, mom, I can't breathe. I need you to stop smoking in the house. Can you do that? And she said, no. Wow. And I'm so proud of him. He took care of himself at 14 and he said, okay, I have to go live with dad because dad didn't smoke and I it was see. a much healthier environment. And so he was the first one to move out and okay. leave the group of kids. How did you after feel Saturday. about that? What's that? Also, how did your mom feel about that when he decided to move out? And mom, you guys, I guess. <laughs> yes, mom was for mom. So mom would see it. She was, she, I always call it victimese. My mom spoke fluent victimese. I mean, she, mm. she, that was her first language was how to be a victim. So it was Oh, you know, poor me. Poor like, me. I can't believe he did this to me. She felt very um, betrayed. She was really angry at him. She wouldn't talk to him for the longest time. Um, she couldn't, you know, be flexible with him or work with him. So really, my mom took it like a child. I mean, just very, mm. you know, very victimized, made it all about her. Very illogical and irrational, I would say, was and her response that to that. how is that for you, Rachel? Because now you can look back, obviously, with the growth and perspective of being adult. But at that time, how was that for you at eight years old? And well, this, at this time, I would have been 10. So Sarah died oh, so when I'm 10. 10 so yeah. she yeah. was 12. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jake and, was 14. Yes. Okay. So then as a 10-year-old, how was this for you? That's a really good question. Yeah. I honestly only thought about losing my sister mm -hmm. at that age. I didn't actually put together that I, I lost my brother too, mm -hmm. you know, and it actually hit your me. dad's. Yeah. He moved to my dad. So in that same time, wow. you know, in that same breath, I lost my sister to death. And then within a year, my brother who was our third, you know, best friend. We were all together. Um, that was super painful. That's actually around when I started getting into trouble. So mm -hmm. 10 and 11, I started um, not wanting to go to school. My grades stopped, started to drop. And I actually started playing around with cigarettes myself and starting to get into like kind of like risky behavior. Okay. And that's what I was going to ask you because, you know, your mother has her own issues. Your dad's mm -hmm. living separately. Your mother moves out. Your sister passes. Here you are. And so who's monitoring you? 
Who's like watching out for Rachel? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so my brother, Matt, was kind of getting into his own trouble. And my sister, Tess, who was a high school dropout, she ran away at the time and came back pregnant. Okay. And right before my sister died, she had my niece. And so that was kind of a light up. And she moved back okay. in with us. Okay. So she was around. And I remember she would feed me. And she became, she was always kind of like a little weird mom to me, in a mm -hmm. sense. Like, she would always check in with me. And mind you, you know, she's trying to get her own life in order, going to school full time, working as a nurse, and she's her own mom. But she was the one that would make sure I was fed. She okay. had like a mom liked really rich guys. So the house layout was <laughs> really sick, rich guys. So the house layout was we lived on the top, but there was almost like a whole living complex under in the basement. There was a I kitchen, see. a living room. So I would go down there and she would feed me in okay. her area like she her bought, apartment almost yeah stairs okay yeah so that's so she, nice you had her yes she was definitely watching out for me when she could okay and the whole time your mom i mean she's just kind of doing her own thing distracted with her own life the different guys that she's dating all of that so she's just kind of unplugged at this point totally unplugged if we went to her with anything she had this sweet way of denial it was a really kind of like oh you know like <laughs> like a little fairy tale like princess but like oh no honey you know she would even her voice was very sweet she's very mm. charismatic very charming mm. it was hard to stay mad at brenda um at she brenda. was she was a little smoother <laughs> i get it honest okay. i'm very yeah. charming from my mother <laughs> <laughs> from your mother you took the good but yes. do, you yes. think, do you think that you started acting out a bit to get, you know, some people say they started doing that to get more attention from their parents who aren't paying attention to them. Or what do you think was the catalyst for you just because you had the freedom? I was trying to escape. So at that time, I started getting sexually abused by my mom's fiance. And that's who bought, who had us in that home. Right. So I remember that is when I started wanting to get out of my skin and I would hide in the closet when he was home, if nobody else was there, um, because he would, he would be just inappropriate. My mom was so crazy. Like I told her about it and she would actually make me take his dinner back to him where he would want to spoon me oh and snuggle me and, you know, touch me inappropriately. Um, thank God he never went all the way, but you know, really 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 gross inappropriate behavior um that would as a 43 i'm like yes i was sexually abused 100 i didn't 100%. deserve that so that i remember when it came around the risky behavior i wanted to not feel anymore it was mm. it was not even about getting attention i would rather not have their attention honestly i would have rather just slip back um but i had so much anxiety it was starting to build where going to school felt like too much and mom liked to move. So we had just moved to school, right? So always trying to catch up. I was an advanced student. I remember one time they said, she's advanced. She should be in all these things. And around that time, not shortly after, I think it was around age 12, before I took my first drink. So, um, and I don't know if you guys want me to go that far ahead. Yeah. But yes, I would yeah. love to understand when that, when you took that turn. So yeah. they finally broke up, we moved again. Mm -hmm to a uh, Fort Wayne area. It was a really hard, hard area. I mean, scary. Like the stuff you see on TV with gang-related violence at school. I got hit just walking down the hallway. Fights were happening. It was bad. And I wasn't used to any of that kind of stuff. And so it was like my junior high. And I remember 
she had finally, you know, split with this fiance. Um, it was just her and I now, like Tess wasn't around. She got married and moved on. And Matt was periodically around, but not much. And I remember telling my mom to this day, I have to watch for this voice. I said, I'm tired, mom. You know, I said, I need a break. And it still brings up emotion. Like wow. it's still, I have to choke back tears right now. Cause it's like how mm. it hits so hard. And that's when I gave up. At 12, you said that to her? At 12. Wow. I was just tired. Mm. And um, I started hanging out with the bad crowd. I found my, I stole my first fifth of vodka. Um, I just gave up. Mm. I was tired of trying and tired of moving and tired of trying to keep up. And what alcohol did for me when I first did it, one, I blacked out because I'm a, <laughs> got a long lineage of alcoholics. So we don't, we don't process alcohol even the same. It's, it's very weird what can happen to you without you even knowing, you know, that you're an alcoholic. And I, I should say this about Paulding County. They're going to love me for this. There's so many drugs. Uh-oh. Punks in Paulding County, it looks normal. You know, oh, nobody. God. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, they're gonna be like, Rachel, you're a horrible human. But sorry, there's a there's a big alcohol problem in Paulding County, and they know it. So wow. they can they can hit me up on DM. I don't care. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk to them about it. I'll share my Well, story. you'll bring light to it. How about that? And I'll twelve step them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say. And so, Rachel, at twelve years old, you would black out. We were already yes. starting to do that then. Yes, wow. I, I had, all I remember is that my friend and I stole a fifth of vodka from the store, brought it back to her little trailer and her dad worked nights. So we were all alone, you know, okay. at 12 years old and she didn't keep drinking like I did. I poured that first plastic cup and I don't remember what happened after that. Mm -hmm. I came to in my mom's home with the police in there and then they wanted, they were driving me to the hospital. I was in a total belligerent blacked out state. So imagine the worst drunk you've ever seen in the bar screaming at people and mm -hmm. saying the worst things you can imagine. Imagine sweet little 12 year old Rachel doing the same thing. I looked mm -hmm. like an old bar drunk being like, yeah, yeah, and just <laughs> the things I said to my mom, you guys, oh my God. And the things I said to the cops, Wow. And what did your my, mom do at this point? Was she just beside herself? Was she oh, yeah. They were all like, what the hell? Because I guess okay. her boyfriend picked me up and I fell out of the trailer on my head. I was covered in blood, puke, pee. Wow. Humiliating. Yeah. Humiliating. I was saying things that were like, I was talking about my sister who passed away. Oh. I was making fun of my mom to the cops about her sex life. Okay. And well... And I was going to say, but this is so like, I'm looking at you and thinking of you as a 12 year old and it's not, it wasn't even your fault. No. Like you weren't, you didn't even know what you were doing. Like you said, you were trying to numb, you were trying to get by. Yes. It so just, it's not your fault. You were talking that way or falling out of the car, or, you know? Yeah. Oh, I had no idea what was in my DNA genetically that was, exactly. that was coming at me. And the craziest part is, you know, the next day, so they took me to the hospital they were going to pump my stomach. Turns out I had had enough time between alcohol where they, it was really, really high, but they didn't. And I was tiny. I was like maybe 70 pounds, you know, and yeah. think about a 70 pound year old kid drinking a fifth of vodka. I even think about, you know, my boyfriend's yeah. kids and I'm like, no way they would die. No, exactly. That's another weird thing about drunks is how much we are able to ingest. Um, it's, it's insane. It's wow. the whole thing is crazy making and looking back, nobody, you know, they put me on uh, probation and I had to go to drug and alcohol counseling. 
And to this day, I have to watch myself because I'm really good at wearing masks. Like there's mm -hmm. even been a couple of times in our conversation where I can, you know, put those emotions down and say, no, you know, and I'll, I'll wear, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I went to my little, um, I went to my little class and I did everything they said to do in a sweetest pie. And that was probably the most deadly thing I had going for me was my sweet disposition. Mm. And I looked very innocent. And it was your, it was your mode of survival, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how you were able to, you know, that fight or flight, like yours is like to push it down. Yep. How long did you go through this cycle from 12 and when, or when did you know, I guess you wouldn't at 12. I mean, who stepped in? Like what happened? How long did you go through this before someone stepped in to help you or you realized, okay, Right, because obviously after this happened, you continued to drink. Um, and that's what I was going to ask, because obviously that would have been so scary as a 12 year old, but something made you pick up a drink again. Well, that's the fun part of alcoholism, right? It's uh, the gift of insanity. And what an alcoholic like me will do is we will. So the next day I did exactly the full prescription of an alcoholic. So they wake up from their drunk. They're told everything they did. They feel like they're going to throw up just from being so sick about their behavior, right? Because you're like, I did what? I did what? Right. I did what? You know, like, what? And I said, Mom, I'm so sorry. Mom, I swear, I'm so sorry. I will never. Mm -hmm. A good drunk will always say, I will never do this again. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Mm -hmm. And they mean it. I meant 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 I'm it. I meant sure. it. You know, 100% over did I mean it. I still remember sitting on the couch with my mom vividly in the living room. And I was so grateful that she forgave me and it felt so good for her to hold me. And I was bruised and banged up from falling out of things. I guess I was banging my head on a sink. Mm -hmm. I totally went nuts. And I heard about like how people were over, other boys were over, thank God I didn't get raped. Mm -hmm. um, I was acting yeah. like a fool around them, you know? So she forgave me and I went probably a little while before thinking, well, uh, you just forget you yeah. I, I hate to I mean it's such a lame answer well, but no it's, it's not and you're 12 yes yes you don't but even reasonable logical thinking you know even later it. you just okay. forget it's this yeah. weird mental blind spot we have that without a program mm -hmm. it will get me every time mm -hmm. I okay. will forget and once I forget I'm in trouble so what about and I just keep going back to that so that time period what was it like going to school i mean because now because now looking back again we're saying you ha you were an alcoholic you had that gene you knew now we can say that's what was happening mm -hmm. but what's happening during school are you with everyone that parties are you dropping out or you know what's going on during that time frame well this is where the chameleon comes in right so i was okay. a really good chameleon so i was a cheerleader and I would not work on my grades until I found out I made the cheer squad, but could not actually continue cheering unless I brought my grades up. So I was the cheerleader that if they had a sleepover and I'm smoking too, full, full on smoking cigarettes, <laughs> doing it all, you know, yeah. hanging out with like hiding out with this group, but also trying to be in that group. Um, so what I would do is I would lie. I started lying. I started telling people like, oh, I don't feel good. I got to go home so that I could go home and isolate and smoke cigarettes mm -hmm. or, oh, I can't go to that because, you know, I've got this thing. And then I would go party with the partiers, be hung over and not make it to cheer practice. You know, okay. I it started taking things that I loved very, very early on 
I actually uh, remember as part of my sobriety, I went through and I, I said sorry to people and I meant it and I made amends. And I remember this one girl, uh, she told on me to the high school, you know, um, cheerleading squad. And she said, Rachel didn't make, you know, practice because she was hungover. Wow. And I lied my face off. I was like, no, I didn't. My mom came in there. She had my back. I walked out. I was like indignant. Like, how dare you <laughs> say that I did this? And what's <laughs> and my mom's like, Rachel, you can tell me, did you do it? I'm like, no. Yeah. I did not yeah. do it. Mom. <laughs> she would have taken it to the court system. Okay. And wow. that poor girl, I would not let her sit at our lunch table the next day. I was a rager. <laughs> so when I got really mad, like as nice as I could be, I could be equally just as destructive to people. I could build you up or I could rip you apart. I was a, uh, really good at both those things and she i rang her over the coals and many 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 years later she she came up on facebook and i was like i just thanked her i said thank you so much for doing what you did for me because even now that i'm sober i can see i can see where alcohol took things from me way back when and i would have never seen that had you not held me accountable and you were right i was drinking i was not making it everything you said was true and i'm so sorry i did that to you and lied and you know punished you or something I did and it was just so and she was so kind and so generous in her forgiveness and it was beautiful that is really cool yeah what nice so, closure to have it, from that too so and talk about like oh yeah. go ahead no you go I was just gonna ask was this like a regular cycle all through high school and did you get help again through that time after you were 12 and got in trouble or you waited until i i know from my mom you got sober later even after high school so was this just a regular cycle this was a regular cycle and what happened with the 12 year old drunk rachel is they sent her to counseling right and and thank goodness they did but what happened was it came up that she was getting sexually abused by one of mom's partners mm. and they had to report it and as soon as that happened well we just happened to up and move and i was telling your mom that my mom was so much like me even though she didn't drink we both had the same kind of ism the same kind of dis-ease right so disease but we mm -hmm. break it up and we say dis-ease that she lied to them and she said that he threatened to kill her had she told anybody about what he did to me wow. that wasn't true she actually continued relationships with him in the future and none of that was accurate but she moved me and i never went to see anybody again that was that was pretty much it. I tried different, you know, things like, can you give me a happy pill? Can you do this? But I never actually would look at my drinking being the issue. Mm, that's uh, horrifying. It, it what is. A what a nightmare and so much trauma that you were subjected to. Oh, for sure. I'm, yeah. I know I had PTSD mm -hmm. when I got sober. I had severe PTSD. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that's why I was drinking, you know, the mm -hmm. way I was. I was definitely genetically alcoholic. But the, you put any mental health on top of it, any mental health issue, and you got yourself a recipe for disaster. I'm lucky to be alive. I'm That's lucky to be alive. That's what I was just going to say, Rachel, is that you are so incredible that you can you can per persevere because there are so many people who do not, who either mm -hmm. do end up dead or choose not to, right? Even though I know it's a disease, but you wanted more. So when was that that you decided this is it? I'm actually going to put a stake in the ground and get some help, go to AA. Well, I wish I could say, you know, it was the time that I passed out on the freeway with the cruise control set going 70 miles an hour, leaving my husband back in Spokane, oh. Washington. 
What? It wasn't that. Oh. I wish I could say it was the time I put a piece of bloody broken mirror in my wallet to remind me that I was stayed home alone and he came home. My husband worked nights. My first husband found me covered in blood with a broken mirror. I don't know what happened. Mm. I just blacked out That's and crazy. went into a rage. Oh that wasn't my last time. I wish I could say it was the time that people begged me to pull the car over when I would drive drunk out of my mind without even choosing. That's the one thing I will say. I want to, you know, if this ever hits somebody in the prison system or somebody who um, was on the giving end of a drunk driving accident, there is nobody in their right mind that wakes up and says, boy, I hope I go kill somebody today. I think that's the one thing I'd like to press in the yeah. alcoholic state. And it does make me emotional mm. that mm -hmm. that would have been my worst fear. And never did I wake up thinking I'm going to put lives in danger. It takes you out of it completely. We of call course. them blackouts or you can, you can even say brownouts, but it is not your right mind. It is not who I am or who anybody is. Right. And it is absolutely heartbreaking on both sides of it. Um, when those accidents happen, I wished I could say I wasn't that drunk. Um, I will always be that drunk. And so now I have a choice in that as a sober woman. Mm -hmm. But once I pick up that drink, which will never happen again for the rest of my life, that's my living amends. I know what's going to happen. It's going to look the exact same way. Mm -hmm. And so I wished I could say, you know, it was all of those times that got me sober. But for me, it was, uh, I like to call it my God shot or higher power. Mm. It was, um, it was really funny. It was June 20th, 2006 was my last drunk. And I thought I was a staunch Catholic. I was trying Catholicism at the time. I was working for the Catholic church. I was trying everything, you know, to become a good human. And I hated myself so much. I hated myself so much because I knew what happened when I drank. Um, everything went out the window and my behavior and, it was interesting. I went to a confessional uh, with a priest, a little Franciscan priest in Shadel. And it was after I, <laughs> I got really unfaithful when I drank too. Not that I was trying to like have intercourse with men, but I would always be like, can I kiss you? Like I always <laughs> wanted to, the nice drunk Rachel, not the crazy drunk Rachel that normally came out. She would want to kiss everybody. Wanted, and, you wanted affection and connection. I guess. Yeah. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but it was a weird thing. I, wow. I love kissing today. So maybe that has something to do with it. But she went and uh, that girl, uh, that Rachel, she went and talked to a priest and he was the first one that planted the seed that I could be an alcoholic. Like I kind of dabbled in it, but he said, Rachel, have you ever thought about alcoholism or AA? And I said, no, I don't have to drink first thing in the morning. And he said, well, that's not necessarily the case for, you know, this. And he told me a really cool story about his mom and he made it personal. And he shared with me like his own experience with his mom and how she didn't drink a lot, but like she had to have this. And he's like, that's not what all alcoholics look like. And he didn't force it on me, but he made the recommendation so that when two months went by, I remember leaving there and I said, I'm just going to stop hiding it. I'm just going to drink the way I want to drink. Cause I was actually hiding my drinking quite a bit. I would do it at night when my um, husband was gone, I would hide it at parties. Like I would sneak it and then come back out. I would come in real quick and, and drink and then try to like not let people know how much I was actually having. I would hide it in the closet at Christmas parties and then go into my room, drink, come back out and act like I was on par with everybody else. Um, so I was doing some real sketch behavior and two months into it, fast forward, my neighbors had been drinking with me with tequila and I was getting resentful 
because that's what any good drunk does. We we're real nice. And then we get <laughs> we keep score. And then we start to build these beautiful resentments. And we had him over for tacos. I tried to go to a Bible study that day down at the local little shale church. Okay. It was closed for the summer. So I came back and why not have a taco parley with tequila with the neighbor? So we're, you know, getting close to these people and they brought tequila over. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get mine. They drink enough of my tequila. I'm going to get mine. So I you were worried in. they were going to drink all of your tequila. Yeah. So they brought okay. their tequila She's over this time. Got yes. Okay. <laughs> they okay. brought their. So I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to get back everything. They drank of mine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I start going in and sneaking in shots uh, and I, before it. I know it, there's a thing they would say, my ex would say, he said, your eyes change, Rachel. You know, we know the right. devil's coming. He would call it the devil. Like we know that's coming. And so I don't remember what happened or how it happened. All I know is that I went into another blackout and this has never happened to me in my whole drinking career. So by then I had drank in 15 years. Um, okay. So I've been sober for the amount that I drank and I, I love life much more on this side. Oh. So, um, so <laughs> oh I came to you guys from a blackout drunk stone cold sober. And I had my six, two husband on the ground over 200 pound man. And I'm swinging at him mm. and I'm hitting him as hard as I can. And his face is so full of terror. So full of fear. Just looking at me like, why are you doing this to me? And he's just like this, like he doesn't understand what's happening. And I look at my hands and I look at him and I'm as sober as like, if I never touched a drop, it went from blackout to fully present wow. and I could see the monster I had become. I'd always heard about it, but I had never witnessed the pain. I was never fully present to the pain I was inflicting on other human beings. And I looked at my hands and I looked at him and I started crying and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like I didn't even know what I was doing. Wow. And I hit my knees and I, I said, I gotta get help. This is mm. no, I can't do this anymore. And he was like 100%, you know, supportive. And I looked up the first AA meeting I went to was that Friday. Okay. The craziest part is, is that it's a family disease, right? Right. And I remember right before I went, this man that I hit, that I put through holy hell, that I tried to cheat on, that I treated like total shit, right? Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. such an asshole to him says, before I go to this meeting, and I looked online at the big book, and I'm like, holy shit, I am, <laughs> I can relate to so much of this. He said, are you sure you need AA? Are you sure? Wow. Are you sure? He didn't and want I was to like, lose you to AA? Well, he didn't even think I was an alcoholic. We have such a warped you thing. If he okay. ever tried to like intervene as your husband or say anything prior to that moment or get you help. He did not, but that night he did. I'm glad you said that because he reminded me, Amanda, that he said that once I came to, he was so upset and so hurt and he had been abused by his own dad when he was young. And so I just perpetuated like ah, this. Why not? You know, yeah. now you got this wife and it breaks my heart when I share in meetings, even not to get too far off track, but I feel for the men in AA and, and they tear up every time I say this, I say, thank God I wasn't born a man because I would have killed my wife. Mm. I would have killed her in a blackout. And they tear up because they so know wrong. the pain of that. And again, it's not like they're choosing. I'm not trying to excuse any crap behavior or abuse, but there is like, it's like your body is taken over and your mind is taken over and you're not even present to it. Mm. And so when, he, when, he, when I came to, he said, you are such a good person when you're sober. I hate you when you drink. Mm. And that hit, and it finally, he stopped making excuses for me. 
Um, he really like held me to the fire on that and just let me take the brunt of what it was I was going through. And I went to my first AA meeting and I remember I, I was scared shitless and it was everything I thought it was because <laughs> it was shadow, right? So it had the drums with the shaky hands and the old, you know, hardworking <laughs> blue collar guys. Shadow's <laughs> the neighborhood in Spokane. That <laughs> yes. And I'm like, oh shit, this is exactly, yeah. these are not my people. You know, I walked right. in, I'm like, there's nothing. And they open their mouths and I always call them my little drunk Buddhas. And they start sharing these things and I'm like, holy shit, I can relate, I can relate, I can relate. And my head's just like, oh my God, like they're speaking my life. Right. And that was the beauty of it. They said, honey, you're not that special. You're just a drunk. We all look the same. Like you're not, you know, and if anybody's listening, questioning their sobriety, our drunk logs, who I became as a drunk, that isn't necessarily the same. But it's that incomprehensible demoralization, that feeling of, I don't want tomorrow to come, that feeling of, I hate myself, uh, that yeah. feeling of irritable, restless discontent where I got to get the hell out of my skin because I can't do this anymore. And yeah. so I pick up that first drink, right? So that's, um, that's what I found uh, was sobriety for me was through right. AA. I met my sponsor that night. She was this nice little old lady that had... <laughs> the same crazy ass story that I did. She hung out with the hell's angels when she first got sober and she, she, she let me uh, work with her and she was so kind to me and nobody wanted anything from me. Mm. Nobody was trying to sell me or get me involved in their pyramid or direct marketing scheme. It was beautiful. Cause I wasn't used to people wanting to be close to me for unless no, they for wanted something back. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. I didn't have any authentic relationships. In fact, you know, people said, well, you still had your car. I still had a job still had my marriage, you know, but there's different forms of currency for me. Right. And I was spiritually bankrupt and I had no connections. I had completely isolated myself because mm -hmm. I could wear that mask. I could be that chameleon. I'd smile all day at work and I would go home and just be like, I hate my life. Mm. I hate my life. I just want to go to bed and I want it to end. Yeah. I think you've made some really important distinctions to highlight what now you can look back and say, what is now called because you also said in your mind you thought it was well I don't want it when I get up first thing in the morning so in your mind that meant you weren't an alcoholic so I think that's really important to point out that that's not what it means right and that not at all yeah. but it did have complete control over my thoughts for at least 24 hours a day mm -hmm. because I would wake up with the hangover thinking about how I'm never going to drink again right that was a bad idea I'd get to work start be able to put some food down around noon start feeling a little bit better, start actually be able to become a productive and around 5 PM. Well, hot damn, you know, whatever it was, I was choosing that time because this on this, whether it's vodka, beer, tequila, this stuff, guys, I would, I would always say this, this is my one liner. No, I'm good on this stuff. It won't happen on this stuff. I won't black out on this stuff. <laughs> ah, I won't rage on this justified. stuff. And they'd be like, yeah, like, okay. or I was all out. If you met me, I was either all out and I was more miserable than you'd ever seen judging you from a self-help book that I picked up that I would choose against the world. Against the person, yes. Oh and I'm my so goodness. much better than, or I was on something that, you know, this time, this stuff, it won't do it. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I feel like, gosh, we could talk to you, Rachel, for hours, because I know <laughs> even more of your life and all the interesting things that you've done in your story. Um, I want to ask you, what is your motivation today like how do you continue to persevere and um, especially when you're having hard days 
is it your sponsor, that woman that you spoke of, that, or people or someone that you could lean on? So the motivation, what would be my motivation to persevere in sobriety? Is that the yes. question? Yes. Um, boy, if you ask a real alcoholic who has real sobriety, they would say, I never want to go to hell again. Mm. It's it we, the, we call it in um, comprehensible demoralization. We're given the gift of desperation. When I went to those rooms, I didn't ever want to pick up a drink again. It, there was something visceral in me that it was just like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And now that's not to say that continued on, right? Your head gets squirrely again. But I will say out of 15 years, I got a half a second of reality about my drinking half a second i'm never guaranteed that again so what encourages me to stay sober and to work my program so yes going to meetings touching base with my sponsor i meditate each morning i um pray you know i believe in a higher power that higher power has shifted greatly i don't practice catholicism not because there's nothing wrong with it at all i think it's a beautiful faith i just find i get a better return on different investments you know so i always look at my investment and return spiritually and where do I, and doesn't mean I'll never go back, but I will say all of that to be said is that I will never, ever think that I'm special as an alcoholic and that I don't need tools mm. to maintain my sobriety. Cause at least I know I'm extraordinary. I know I'm beyond extraordinary as a mm -hmm. human being. Like I get that, but I know I am not special as an You're alcoholic. You're not above, yeah, needing no. help. And I'm just your typical drunk. And so <laughs> I listen when yeah. they say I stopped going to meetings, I stopped doing this, and then I got drunk. And then I also know that's terrifying. 15 years of tragic drinking in a split second. What are the odds? That's like hitting the lotto, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like when you're given that gift of sobriety, I don't F with that gift. I don't try no. to give it back. I don't act like it's not important. I I told a woman the other day that reached out about sobriety, I said, hun, if you put half the effort that you put into your sobriety or that you put into your drinking as you do into sobriety, you're going to have a great life. Mm. Just even That's 50%. That's such a good point. That is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just half the effort. Half the effort will yes. get you an incredible life in sobriety. So how often wow. are you still going to meetings? I go once a week. Okay. Thursday mornings. Yes. And I protect it as if it's, if it's everything. It. I don't, a lot of people go often. I like quality over quantity. So it has to be the most epic meeting. It has to fulfill me. And I will move on if I get a consistent where the group starts to change and it's not meeting my needs. I'm very selfish with my sobriety. Very selfish. Mm, that's great. And I don't, I don't feel bad about moving on at all. That's good. Yeah. You have very strong, clear boundaries, which is very obvious. Yes. Yeah. And really important. Um, before we move on, I want to talk about what you're doing today and what brings you joy. Uh, but I wanted to ask because I'm sure anyone listening to this is going to wonder what happened to that 6-2 husband that you were beating on that was like, ah! <laughs> and we really didn't talk about how you came to Spokane. I know we're going a little bit backwards, but we talked about That's Ohio okay. and then how you got here. But yeah, I was curious what happened with your husband as well. So I met him in the military and that's actually what got us to Spokane. I'll just lump it all together. We met yes. in England, probably one of the darkest times in my life in my drinking career. Mm. Um, and he was somebody stable and he loved me. Um, actually what I, what I believe about that, I had a belief system at the time that says I'm such a piece of shit. Thank you for loving me. So I had to, he had his own issues, right? So he, he would remind me and he was really good at that. Of I'm the mess up. 
you know, he's covering my tracks all the time. So when I got sober, it got very uncomfortable for him. And that I didn't know that was a thing. So when one person gets healthier, who's super sick, the person that's taking care of them can get very not happy. And they don't even know why. Um, I'm not, I would never call him an alcoholic. I knew he still brewed beer. He would ask me things like, well, when can you drink again? It was a huge part of his lifestyle. And so eventually we grew apart and he found, you know, people and places he could party with. And that didn't work for me anymore. And so I think we were good about letting each other go. I, he says he was not unfaithful. Um, <laughs> my sources say otherwise, but regardless, <laughs> Um, seven years later, I was actually able to give him a proper amends and really tell him, you know, and own my stuff at it. Before then, he was like Satan to me um, mm. because I got these sources that told me things. And so we actually, I uh, honestly saw him at Scarywood the other day. And oh, I didn't did? even say, I did. He was getting <laughs> off a roller coaster. I had my little mentor re, re with me. And I was like, that's my first husband. <laughs> oh my gosh. That I guess I didn't realize he was here. Still, I think he's happily so. married and he has a child. I could never have children. So he ended up uh, marrying a woman he worked with and they had a baby. It looks like a boy together and she had children. He looks like he has a very fulfilling life, honestly. Mm. And every part of me is so happy for him. And there's nothing there for me, you know. Right. Um, and we just, we were toxic together but we're so good apart. So I think it was like one of the best things I needed him. I think he protected me from a lot of things in our marriage. We were married eight years and I know he protected me from a lot of bad things that could have happened in my time in the military. So that's I'm really very grateful. clear. That's clear from the outside looking in. Clearly he was meant to be in your life to serve that purpose and to get you on a different path. Yes. Right. And you so. can reflect on it positively now. And that made me think too, my mom and I both know um, your boyfriend now. And I was just curious how you think about the people that you surround yourself with today. And if he's I supportive that. in that journey, because um, it seems like, yeah, you're just so happy and in love <laughs> and you have the support that you need right now. That's perfect, Amanda. That's a, that's, gosh, you guys are good at this. I'm glad you <laughs> did your own podcast. This is like really, it's great thought out. Um, so with my current relationships today, whether it's my boyfriend, whether it's my friends, your mom obviously is uh, in my life today. She has become my ultimate girl crush, by the way, Amy, you are. I would say, oh, I have brunch with my girl crush coming up. And I get likewise, so excited. Likewise. <laughs> yep. So I think my belief system about myself today went from, I am such a piece of shit. Thank you for loving me. I don't belong. Um, what if they find out who I really am? That was things I would ask, you know, those are belief systems I had. I can't be my real self because they'll run. I believed at one time I couldn't shine too bright because I'd make you uncomfortable. I wouldn't chase down my dreams because I thought everybody would leave me if I was too bright. Mm -hmm. And so today, what I can say when I look at who I surround myself with is I am a beautiful woman who belongs in this world. I have energy and generosity and those that are, I guess I don't want to say that deserve it, but have proven themselves to be worthy of my time and energy. Those are the ones I'm going to bless them with my presence. And, and in return, I feel super blessed with them as well. So I don't hang out with anybody because I pity them. I always believe to hold people big. And my time is so much pouring out with what I do as a trainer, with what I do as a coach, that anybody that I invite into my life outside of my working hours, you need to bring it 
Mm-hmm. And you need I to you know, level up. You need to be authentic. You need to be everything that I admire. Um, and in that, I will say the people reflect back to me the things that I love in this life. And so I see how beautiful I am when I hang out with women like your mom. Like she reflects things back to me. And I'm like, God, that's beautiful. You know, sometimes I think we question that, you know, I can make inappropriate jokes, but also go really deep. Yep, you yes. know, when I see that in another yes. woman, I'm like, gorgeous. Yes. But I, and I don't know that until I see it in somebody like your mom, right? Yeah. So, or that ability to explore life and to taste things like, am I flaky? And then I meet your mom. And then I'm like, no, that's actually just so wise and so, you know, profound and so open of her. And so I think what I find today is that I I have people in my life, like my boyfriend who reflect back to me, this beautiful, kind, generous spirit, um, and this heart that he wants to be in my presence. Right. And that I deserve this and he knows it, you know? So I guess, um, over the time of staying sober, my belief system has profoundly, profoundly changed. And one thing I've learned is that as human beings, I was told we have to be right. So if I believe that I'm a piece of shit that doesn't belong in this world, I can't have people that prove me otherwise. I can't have people in my life that counter, that, that come against that belief system. Right. Mm, So whenever I want to know what I really believe about myself, I look at the company I'm keeping. Mm That's so beautiful. I so appreciate you sharing that and owning the value you bring to the table, to everyone's life you touch. It is. <laughs> I appreciate really, that. It's so true and it's so beautiful to acknowledge that in yourself. That is such strength when you can acknowledge that in yourself and say it proud. Thank you. I just, it's so beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing that. And again, I would, I know both Amanda and I, I know she's, probably bursting at the seams because we have so many questions and so many things we'd want to ask you but we will um we do like to end this conversation with one question um before i do that i will say that in our show notes we'll list um rachel's site and oh i wanted to ask just for our listeners because i am certain they're going to say how do i work with rachel if i don't live in spokane washington So can you work with people virtually for your nutrition coaching piece? Absolutely. Not personal training, but I can definitely, I have weight loss programs that are group programs, or we can do one-on-one coaching nutritionally, super easy Mm -hmm. to do that online. I'm sure training would be too. I'm just not interested. So I don't spend time where I'm not interested. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That's how we serve others. That's how we serve others. And I will tell you, yes, Rachel, she has a a kick-ass body and it's like, okay, whatever she's doing, I'm going to do. (laughs) And that's just the same how we attract, you know, we want, we need to look to people we aspire to be. And so you are such an amazing coach and um, anyone I would highly recommend reaching out. So we'll add that information in the show notes. Um, And so our last question for you is, if your 15-year-old self walked up to you, Rachel, today mm. as this amazing woman that you are um, and said, what do I do? What do I do? Mm. I would tell her, gosh, I'm going to have to close my eyes for this one. Okay. So my 15-year-old self walked up to me and said, what do I do? Yeah. What is the number one thing you would want her to know? I would want her to know to follow her heart. And she was told that, but she didn't quite understand that people would say, what's your heart say? What's your heart say? Um, I would tell her to ask for help and to follow her heart. She, um, until she was 27, she did not know how to ask for help. She did not know how to tell the world. I don't have it. 
I don't have it. I need help. And if I could go back and I could tell that 15 year old Rachel anything, it is so strong and it is so courageous. Just ask for help. That's all. That makes me really emotional because at that age, we think we're supposed to know all this stuff and we think it's not good to ask for help. So that simple statement is so powerful. Yes. Oh, I think at, I think at any age, I mean, it resonates with point, me. Amanda. Yeah, mm-hmm. it resonates with me now. And, you know, just having, we all go through life challenges and um, sometimes you do need that help. And I'm guilty of you, Rachel. Like when people ask if you're okay, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. It's okay. Mm-hmm. But those are the moments to maybe reflect and just be like, do I need to ask for help no matter what age you are? I yes. love that. And I think, you know, I think that's what sobriety helped me for that. Like the voice I would always say is, I got it. I got it. And then boom, I would blow up or something would happen and everything would fall apart. And I started learning that I can go to somebody if like Amy said, you know, I want what she has, you know, she has a good physique or she knows what she's doing with her body. I do that in marketing. Now I do that in spiritual direction. I do that in any area where I don't feel like I fully have it, I will invest in myself today. Like invest in yourself. Like if I could put my money behind anybody in this world and bet on, bet on them like a racehorse, it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be me. So I'm going to put my money behind me because I know I'm going to see it through if I get a really good coach who can give me the proper tools to, you know, uh, kind of work through a different, you know, area that I'm not able to get any traction with on my own. That's the best. I think that's such great advice to end on. You know, every great coach needs a coach. Every person needs a help and a team and support. That's, yeah, that's really important. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Rachel. It was so lovely to have you here. And we would oh, just keep you. talking to you. I know. I know. You guys are lovely. <laughs> very. I'm very impressed with your uh, questions. And you really got me to think about stuff. I will honestly say these are the first answers. Some of these things I've answered with you ever in any kind oh. of interview or, or podcast or even in a relationship with questions. So mm, thank you for it. bringing some. I'm going to have to process some of this after this call. Thank you so much for joining us and for listening to this episode. Please share with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe. We're looking forward to the next episode and we'll talk to you soon.